Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, CEO for the Center for Public Integrity, Paul Chung. Paul has been at the forefront of the intersection of technology and journalism for his entire career. He managed a $30 million Knight Foundation fund to bolster the use of AI in newsrooms. So I asked OpenAI's chatbot, ChatGBT, to author his introduction, and here goes. I had the pleasure of meeting Paul while working on the Facebook Journalism Project where we developed and led an annual convening of some of the best and brightest in our field. Paul has had a long and storied career in journalism, starting with his childhood in Hong Kong and his adolescence in suburban New Jersey. He went on to work at the Wall Street Journal, the Miami Herald, the Associated Press, NBC News, and the Knight Foundation, to name just a few of his many stops along the way, including the program now known as the Media Transformation Challenge. In this episode, we'll be discussing Paul's journey and how his experiences with the promises and pitfalls of America have informed his work at the Center for Public Integrity, where he focuses on reducing inequality. Whether you're a journalist, a media enthusiast, or just someone who's interested in learning more about the inner workings of the industry, I think you'll find this conversation with Paul to be enlightening, thought-provoking, and even poignant. I actually moved to America when I was nine. Right. I was born in Hong Kong. So I was primarily raised by my grandmother. So my parents is already here in the States. I met my dad once when I was seven. He came back from the States to Hong Kong and they tell me this is my dad. So I just assume that this is my dad. Before I was nine, like I only have a really vague memory of my mom. But I never met her in person. I was really raised by my grandmother. I haven't really met my parents until I officially moved to the United States. My parents didn't come back to get me. I was put on a plane by myself. You know, in Hong Kong, I flew Pam Am from Hong Kong to Canada and then to New York. And I didn't speak a lick of English. My uncle wrote me an index card with um, three phrases. One is, I'm thirsty and I need water. The second phrase is, I need to go to the bathroom. And then the third phrase is like, help. So he basically had those three phases. And, and I remember I was on the plane, it's like Pam Am. And I just feel like, wow, the plane is really huge. I was by myself. I was sitting to this nice older lady who trying to speak to me, but obviously I have no clue what she was saying. And I couldn't really watch the movies because those are like the days when you have like that one projector that comes down. And I just remember the seats are really big. When they serve you the food back then, they have these cheese and wax. I have no freaking clue what they were. Like I literally never had, like I had McDonald's, like a cheeseburger, but I never had like just cheese by itself. And so I thought it was candy and I just bite into it. And I'm just like, it really, it haunts me 
for like a decade. Every time I see these wax cheese, I'm like, ugh, gross. When I get to Canada,、um, because I was a minor, the sort of gate agents or the、um, security people—they're the ones who sort of handle me going through the the borders and checks. And I remember I was sitting in one guy's office, and he was playing with my like video games. And then he got me like a can of Pepsi. I was there like in the office for like an hour before the plane boarded again, and then I. Came to the states to meet my parents the first time. Wow, that was nine. That's a lot for a, like a twenty-year-old to manage, but a nine-year-old—that's a lot. How do you think about that now in terms of the scope of that undertaking as a nine-year-old? At first, I, I don't think I thought much about it because I was just excited to reunite with my parents、yeah. and start this new life. But when I think about it in hindsight, like that's really. You know, for someone who just don't speak the language, like I can't even imagine what that feels like for other. I, I think it's probably less scary for a child than it is for an adult. For my parents, who also don't speak English, and the reason why they left Asia to come to America, like the hopes and fears they have, must be ten times more than what I was experiencing、yeah. when I was nine. For some people, they just like, "Oh my God, you came here by yourself from Hong Kong." I'm like, "Well, you know, that's still ten times easier than for my folks, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who probably came with nothing, right? Like they came with like a couple hundred dollars in their pocket to try to come to the states and make a life. And meanwhile, I'm just sort of like, you know, I'm coming here to see my parents. It's fun. It's an adventure. What was the context of the move from your parents' standpoint? Well, they want to get away from Hong Kong before China right, took it right, over, right? So, you know, like my dad had been through like the famine in China, like post World War Two、mm-hmm. and post you know communist takeover. So, I think they just sort of have that natural skepticism of what,、yeah. you know, like what China then, and if they were to take over Hong Kong in 1997, what does what is the implication? And at that point, they just sort of think about what is a bigger opportunity, not just for themselves, but for me. How did、um, the specter of your dad's experience inform how he raised you once you got to America? I think it has less impact on me per se, but it actually impacting the way he think about risk and reward. Right. So for me, my dad is pretty risk averse. You know, when I first came here, I mean, literally, as I was graduating from college, every single job he just like, just make sure you do a good job.、Right. Why are you leaving? It seems stable, right. right? Like to me, like the message I got is stability was super important for him, and I could see that, right? You know, for my dad, who he basically when he came here, he worked in Chinese restaurant, typical immigrant story, and then he eventually has his own Chinese restaurant. That's what he did. Right, he never thought about like what does it mean for me to like think about innovating. His prerogative is stability and be able to provide a stable environment for his family. And so I think in that sense, you know, it impacts me in the way I think about risk. It's something that I have to unlearn quite a bit, you know, as I'm growing up in terms of thinking about yes, stability is super important, but if you Don't take the risk. Sometimes you just don't get the bigger reward. Unsurprisingly, I think of you as one of the most 
adventurous and innovative guys I know. They took the biggest risk of their life, leaving everything that they know to come to a foreign country. But I think that risk was so big for them. And is their one-time risk? Because I think for immigrants, and and I would say for a lot of families of colors, especially immigrants, is if you take that risk, you only have one shot. Yeah. Like if you fail, you're going to fail miserably. Right. So I think for them, they already took the biggest risk of their life. So when they came here, they're very risk averse because they felt like they could not literally, you know, do a second risk. Yeah. Like they, they can't even imagine what that looked like. What was your adolescent experience in the United States and how did it sort of meet any vision or expectations you had of what being a young person in America would be like? When I was in Hong Kong, I remember vividly watching Dynasty and Dallas. I guess those were the big shows of the moment. And in my head, I literally thought every American was like an episode of Dynasty and Dallas, like really fancy and people live in big houses and that's the life. And I get to New York in the 80s, that's far from like the reality that I was confronted in. I live in a walk-up in Delancey Street. It was a walk-up, basically it was tenement housing where sure. I was thinking just like, why is the bathtub in the kitchen? And then they have this thing that cover the bathtub that serve as like a, a, like a food prep area. And then the bathroom was like a separate bathroom just with the toilet without the sink. And then... To flush the toilet was like the chain. Wow, yeah. I didn't know I was poor or in tenement housing until like until I was much older. And I'm just like, oh, I, I said, that's not the America that I saw on TV. And when I came here, I mean, it was the Lancy Street, Lower East Side back in the 80s. And, you know, I just remember at that point, there were a lot of um, homeless people who were probably mentally unstable mm-hmm. and they all look like veterans. I played rock shows there in the mid nineties, right? Like that's all of the music scene. And when I started out down there, it felt much different than it feels today. Low East Side was not sort of hip. It was dangerous because it was the intersection of, you know, these different ethnic group and the emergence of like the Chinese gangsters, Mm -hmm. right? So it was not a great place to be in. So when I moved to New York, I remember coming in, I was nine, you know, like going to Catholic school in um, what is like NoHo now, yeah. right? St. Patrick's. And then I quickly moved from sort of Manhattan to the suburb of New Jersey because my dad ended up owning a restaurant, uh-huh. Chinese restaurant there. And this is where I feel like that's when I really learned the bulk of English and feel what like American suburbia looked like. That's where I learned how to ride a bike. That's where I learned how to speak English. That's where I learned how to swim. That's where I learned how to do all the non-city people things. How did your folks give you guidance in terms of retaining or not your identity? My parents... They were just working all the time. My mm. mom worked in a garment factory. My dad, when I first came to the state, before my dad owned his own restaurant, he worked upstate. So I see him about once every two weeks, right? And my mom worked in a garment factory. After she dropped me off to school, like, I don't see her until like after school, maybe like even after after school, right? Because after school, I would walk home and I'm literally one of these classic latchkey kids. 
right? I go back, I would just do my thing and then I should come home and have dinner. So I think in that sense, because I grew up in the low East Side, there was enough Chinese students where like, they didn't feel like they have to tell me one way or the other, Yeah. right? I, I very much felt like I'm somewhat independent. I'm a very independent nine or 10 year old, right? I was able to walk from my place to go to school by myself and come home like I was not, there was no helicoptering yeah. at all. And so I think in that sense, we're like, my parents didn't really push me one way or the other. But I think, you know, retaining part of my identity is that both of them don't have the command of English. So they rely on me constantly. So I think me speaking Chinese to them is A, because I didn't speak English, neither did them, right? So we were just conversing in Chinese and... And I came here at an age where I was old enough to consume Chinese media, like newspaper, listen to radio program and watch television in Chinese and be able to comprehend everything. So I never felt like I had to switch identity. To me, through and through, I'm Chinese. Until I I moved to New Jersey, I, I feel like I didn't really have a commanding ability of English until I was like, maybe eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. You know, I came here like in fourth or fifth grade. And so at that point, even then, I didn't really have to grapple with my identity because I know who I am. I'm, I'm an immigrant. My parents are immigrant. We speak Chinese. And the more I could speak English, the more they rely on me to help them sort of process things like letters from the government or, yeah. or like dealing with whatever like notices or bills that that's in English. That's a lot of responsibility in its own way, isn't it? It feel like work. I think that's one thing that in New York, I didn't feel it. But when I live in New Jersey, in the suburb of New Jersey, I really felt it because there was something fundamentally different between me and all my friends. Yeah. I had to work at my dad's restaurant, right? Like almost every day on the weekends, my friends get to play, Yeah. right? They just go ride bikes. They get an an allowance. I get an allowance, but it's more in the form of like, this is my my salary because yeah. I help out. I really resented that when I was younger. I'm really grateful for it because I felt like what it teach me is responsibility and disciplines in ways that maybe other people haven't acquired, right? So like being fiscally responsible is important to my parents and is important to me because I remember when I, when I was in ninth grade, you know, like I would work, my dad said, okay, I need you to work at the restaurant from this hour in these days. And so every month I would get like $200, right? For a ninth grader, $200 at that point yeah. in the like late eighties, early, that's like not yeah. insignificant yeah. for like a ninth grader. And I remember each year, like ninth grade, I get 200, 10th grade, I get 300, like junior year, I get like 400 and it sort of plateaued at 400 until I was like, don't need that money anymore. I do everything myself. If I want to buy a bike, then I have to learn how to budget. And yeah. so you need to manage that. How were you um, received by your peers in suburban Jersey? When I first moved to New Jersey, it was rough. Um, I was clearly a city guy. And in the low East Side is quite diverse, right? And when I moved to the suburb of New Jersey, it's a little town called Leonia, is right across George Washington Bridge. I would say majority of the folks there were white and there were some Koreans. There was one other Chinese person in the school. 
and maybe like one black person, if that many. Wow. And I remember even like in my senior year when we graduate, we have like two or three black folks in in our class, and like a handful of Koreans and Asians. Right? It's very much like we were the minority. And and I would say, you know, coming from a city. I don't want to be boss around. When I was in the seventh grade, I was actually one of the meanest kid in school because I just basically do not want people to mess around with me. Yep, yep, yep. It was defense. You had to put up a defense. Yeah. yeah. And also I see how they like think about my parents, right? Every mm-hmm. Halloween, they will egg my dad's restaurant. I get really mad. I mean, kids are just doing what kids do. I don't think like back then they're thinking about that with such intent. They just think that these are the local businesses and they are a little bit different than us. So we're going to target them. Mm. And I know that usually sent me into rage because these are the people I go to school with. Yeah. Right. And I think with that, I've sort of set up like, you might be able to mess with my dad's restaurant to a Halloween, but you're not going to mess with me on a day to day level. I will not tolerate it. That's so interesting. Having worked with you for a few years and, and becoming friends. I love that you're like a tough cookie. I can connect with you in a kind of more vulnerable way as well. But I also love that you're a tough cookie, Do you know, that you kind of won't take shit. And I'll know you're telling the truth about whatever we're doing, you know. So that's such an interesting sort of origin story. But it also sounds to be empathetic, like painful, honestly, right? Like not ideal. Nobody wants to feel that way. I don't want to be in a rage because I go to school with a bunch of jerks. So much of my childhood anger is because I feel like my parents have to work. Mm. And I didn't understand that. My dad didn't come to my junior high graduation. He didn't come to my high school graduation. You know, when I was in the National Honor Society, my parents didn't show up. And I remember vividly, yeah. my friend's parents is like, where's your parents? And I say, they're working. Right. And it made me feel bad because they're working. But at the same time, once I get a little bit older and I look back, I'm just like, yeah. Is that what they really want? No, they didn't freaking come to the country so yeah. that they could work like all the time, 11 hour day and not be able to spend time with their children. Like that's not their American dream, right? Yeah. Like they worked their ass off so that I could do what I do today. Yeah. And it took me a while to recognize that. And do you think about that? Like suddenly everything that I feel about them disappear, mm. right? Because I think when you're going through like your childhood, you constantly compare yourself with other families. And you're like, why is my family so different? Why do I not have family dinner like other normal family? To other kids, it's cool, right? I'm like, oh, I just get a takeout from my dad's restaurant and go back and eat. But I'm eating by myself, right? It's not like I'm having like a family dinner. And so my growing up experience is very much a working class immigrant experience. And, and I feel like when I was younger, I did resent that. And I didn't appreciate everything that I gone through onto much older. And now I go back and I say, I would not trade it for anything else because that experience is what shapes who I am. It shapes sort of my discipline. It shapes my tenacity, knowing that you just can't let these things consume you because at the end of the day, if you want to thrive and you want to live, you have to play the long game. Yeah. You can't let these little like blips or these little things that it seems like unfair eat you up because if you can't move past that, then you just can't go anywhere. It's so interesting specifically in understanding this sort of gap between really those kind of two Americas, right? The dynasty Dallas and the working class. And and in fact, in a lot of ways, it seems to me that's a 
at the center of what you're doing right now. And you're uniquely positioned to do that. Yeah, I remember when this opportunity came. I mean, first of all, I would say like when I think about journalism, I never thought I want to be a journalist. I was very much like, oh, let me major in pre-med and do the thing that every Asian parent expect you, like either a doctor or like accountant or some kind of finance. But I just really fell in love with journalism and I major in journalism so that I don't have to study. Um, that was the other thing because <laughs> I, I'm already studying so much with um, physics and biology and chemistry. I really, you know, I was like looking for a shortcut. I'm just like, what could I major in? That doesn't require me to like memorize like a bunch of stuff. Oh, journalism. And, and I remember I even did magazine journalism. My senior thesis was like a piece about vintage jeans. Oh Why is gosh. it so expensive? And, you know, I, I just never thought I would be a journalist. And I remember after like college, I realized that I didn't want to be a doctor because mm. I really don't like sick people. So what did I do? So my first job, I was working in a hospital, combining sort of my journalism degree and sort of my, my science background. So I helped the hospital, like we designed the website and do press releases and organize event because back in the early 90s, NYU, one of the adjunct professor offered HTML class. They said, yeah. there's this thing yeah. called the World Wide Web and you could program. And I'm just like, cool, I want to, I want to do it. So I think that sort of set me up in sort of my career in journalism. And I remember when I interviewed for the Wall Street Journal, I didn't apply to be a journalist. I was looking to be an assistant and sort of like administration assistant. Right. That's why I interviewed for. And at the end, two weeks later, what they came back with was a job as the night graphics editor for the Wall Street Journal. I was yeah. 23 and I literally was just shock. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, is this real? Is this happening? And, you know, part of the reason why they, they hired me because I could do all the production work, but yeah. because of my science background, I was really comfortable with data. Yeah. And so that's sort of what launched me in journalism and sort of fast forward to sort of like CPI. When this opportunity came up you know, I sort of th thought about it is the mission was changed to focus on inequality, right? CPI used to be one of these places that focus on corporate accountability as well as sort of like government accountability. But, you know, when the pandemic changed, the, the previous CEO, Susan Smith Richardson, and by the way, she was the first person of color to lead CPI um, as CEO, she had changed the mission to focus on inequality. And when she left, and I would say so much of my life is talking about that, fighting about that. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of these things of like, why not? And if not now, then when? Yeah. Like, and, and I think that's against the backdrop of, you know, BLM and sort of like AAPI hate. Yep. And at that point, I just realized that if I don't do something about it now, I just don't know when the time will be. And, and I remember during the interview, the way I pitch myself is I show a picture of my family and I talk about my family history how I came to this country, I understand inequality because I'm a byproduct of what basically the best of America and the worst of America, mm -hmm. right? I've experienced, me and my parents have experienced all different kinds of inequality, right? And they still do, and I still do. And at the same time, I see the promise of what this country is because mm. I don't think in any other place, a person 
with a low economic background, with an accent, could make it. With basically, I have like my family have zero network. We don't know any rich people. Like, how do I even get into this industry and, and get to where I am today? Only America, we're doing it, but it also come at a great cost. What is that cost? That basically time that my parents could have spent with me. It came at a cost where, in order for them to get to reach economic sustainability. They cannot spend the time that they can with me, right? I could see they spend a lot more time with my sister, which is 13 years apart, because at that point they have certain sustainability, and so you know it come at that cost. And for me, it basically come from the burden of navigating the different systems、yeah. in America, right? Not knowing English and being subject, you know, whether from school. All the way to professionally, like because I'm always bilingual. I always been bilingual. I have no intent of getting rid of my accent because it's so much of who I who I am. But at the same time, every time I speak, people always question my intelligence.、Mm. Could he really be a good journalist? Because he has an accent. Like, could he really like do this? Because he sound like a foreigner. Yeah. And we all know how perception is for people who sound different and speak talk differently. Yeah. Ugh. I acknowledge and own my privilege, even as I try and get outside and understand,、um, and even as I experience a whole bunch of otherness in my own、mm-hmm. skin, in my own experience. But just hearing you talk about it, it's like, ah,、oh, fuck. But I think that's where like journalism, you know, could be so different, and and I think that's why, in some way, I'm doing what I'm doing because I just want to show other people who look and sound like me. That you could actually make it in journalism, and journalism has a big enough space to accommodate. Because literally, I remember, sort of like in different junctures, all the time, my intellect is being questioned because、mm-hmm. of my accent. And even you know, is my English perfect? No, but I don't think you have to be perfect with your English to be a good journalist, right? Like I'm not a writer. I'm a visual person. I use data. I think about. Visual storytelling, you know, I certainly have to have some command of the language, but I'm by far not the best writer. But I am super organized, and I do understand what a good story is. So I, I just think, you know, through the journalism career, I do think that time and time again, our industry sort of favor people who could write. While I know that's important, think about where journalism is going. Yeah, I mean, think about where technology is going with like ChatGPT. Like,、yeah. they could write as well as yeah, the AI now could write as well as a writer. And so, what does it mean to be a good journalist? And 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 that means you probably the industry probably need more people that look and sound like me. I live in a tenement housing when I first came to America. Like, I never thought I would do the work that I do today. How did that leap from the Hospital in Brooklyn to the Journal inform your sense of your own capabilities. I hate healthcare. They were terrible people. <laughs> They were terrible people. Like I built their first website, and I just remember like one of the VP was just so smug, and the culture of they know it all, and you're just there to serve them. You could really tell where the the internet. Where is going? And I just feel like you need me, yeah. But I don't need you because 
there's a lot that you don't know about technology. And I think at that point, I just feel like I needed to get out because first, I cannot be working $25,000 a year and living in New York. At that point, I was working in a a full-time job and I was also a barista in a cafe. I think that's also a familiar story for a lot of journalists. You need to have two jobs to make a living. And, And I just remember like, I just need to do something different. And when I saw the Wall Street Journal job, I just applied for it. And I remember the hiring manager told me that you remind me a lot of me when mm. I was younger. That's when I felt like, okay, I have a shot in this. That experience also informed the way I think about hiring and recruiting because I just felt like they were impressed that I have my own website. And those were like terrible websites. Yeah, right. that like GeoCities. Yeah. GeoCity, right? Like it's awful. And at that point is I was also one of those folks who don't want to rely on other people with the production work. So I know how to use Quark right, Express. Right, right. I know how to use Photoshops and I know can navigate around Adobe Illustrators and, you know, spreadsheet didn't freak me out and I was <laughs> comfortable with math. And, and as a data and graphics person, they want someone who basically the night graphics person is the person who have to prep sort of a lot of the data um, to put into visuals for the following day stories. But if something that needs to be changed, someone needs to have enough production skills to go and update those visuals themselves, right? So that means instead of them hiring two people, a data person to do the, the research analysis and a production person to do the design, I was able to do that job myself at night. And so that was basically my foray into journalism. My hours shift at two and ended at 10. I spend majority of my time myself, but I basically spend a lot of time just listening mm-hmm. to news meeting and conversations. And, and, you know, at that point, Paul Steiger was the editor at the Wall Street Journal. Like, he doesn't know who I am. I'm just like so far down in the totem pole, right? And all I did is just sort of like absorb and listen to the way they ask questions, the way they think about news the different angle to take. And I would say just listening to those conversations was so invaluable. Yeah. And this is something I've been thinking a lot sort of here at CPI, especially along the line of investigative is there's a reason why we call journalism a craft. Mm. It's a craft because it is some kind of artistry that takes time to refine, but it's a craft that you could learn the basics, but it doesn't mean you're going to be really good at it. Right. right. And I think in some sense, like, when I was there at the Wall Street Journal, there were so many good people and so many of the editor who will spend the time with you to help you refine the craft and say, right. look, have you thought about it this way? Yeah. Have you approached it in this angle? This is why we're doing it this way. And I just think this is something that is missing now in yeah. news, especially in local news. That transfer yeah. of knowledge yeah. is no longer there because no one have the time. So now we basically, you know, have folks who might have all the technical skills, but does that mean they're really good at what they're doing? And my early experience in the industry really helped shape the way I think about knowledge building, the way we think about hiring and retention. I mean, for me, the way I think about it is whatever we do is all learnable. Yeah. But do you have the appetite to learn? Do you have the patience to to learn from your mistakes? And do you have that tenacity to like work out your kinks? I look for that. 
And also, I, I sort of think about, is this someone that I'd be okay with if one day they become my boss? Right. right and I, right. I'm okay with that. And that means this is a person that I could hire and recruit. A quick interruption to ask for your help. We're at 21% of our friends and neighbors fundraising goal with just 12 days to go. So if you haven't, please visit fnndoc.com right now to help us finish this vital, timely documentary about how trauma and chronic stress impacts us, each other, and our civic fabric. Your donation will help us fund final shoots, license footage, and produce graphics and animation, and enable us to deliver a rough cut to film festivals this spring. So please donate to fndndoc.com right now. Thanks, and back to our program. You left the journal, you go to the Miami Herald, AP and NBC. What are some key lessons from that sort of decade of the real doing? At the time I left the Wall Street Journal, I was turning 30, and I have literally, my whole life had just been around New York. Yeah. I was interviewing with the Times and the Post, and then I sort of thought about, like, is this it? If I don't leave New York, I'm just going to die in New York. So I think at that point, I, I sort of took a risk and say, let me just go explore what's out there. I was really scared of leaving the Wall Street Journal because my world was so insulated in a big place, right? I think for folks who work in big companies like the Times or the Journal or, or NBC or CNN or even MTV, everyone's just like, I'm here to protect the show. Yeah, You end up living in this bubble. Yeah, Like I'm here like to do everything for the Wall Street Journal because yeah. like I really ate up whatever brand messaging yes. that they were feeding me. So at that point, I sort of think about like, do I actually have any skills that anybody want? And I didn't know that that was actually valuable until I start interviewing with a bunch of other people to know that, oh, local news really suck at data. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, so many people don't know how to manage data, don't know how to manage numbers, who who cannot express data in alternative format, who cannot think stories beyond the written words. And I think that's what brought me to the Miami Herald, because at that point, you know, I, I remember distinctly um, Liza Gross, who's now at Solution Journalism. She was my hiring manager. Yeah. She was the managing editor there. She told me that I need someone who could turn the visual department to be a visual journalism, meaning that they're not there to serve the writers, but they are able to tell yes. stories. Generate themselves. Yep. And what they do the best, visual, graphics, illustrations, you know, how do we convey the story with design? She took a risk on me saying that I'm going to let you run this little department. And, you know, I love the beach. I'm like, why not? And Miami seems to be popping. So I think that's what brought me to Miami and I was there for six years. And during those six years, I think that's where the um, the entire bubble of journalism bursts, yeah. right? The disappearance of Knight Ritter, Miami Herald was sold to McClatchy, and you know, the entire business model was like beginning to decline, right? Because with Craigslist and all these, you know, like the emergence of like Facebook and and Google, you could really see newspapers struggling. When I was there, because it's sort of like a little bit of free fall, I was able to say, oh, I want to redesign Miami Herald. And so I end up being one of the principal designers to redesign oh, wow. the website, Wow! you know, back then. And I helped them launch a mobile app 
right? Before mobile app was a thing. And, and so I basically took the chaos into opportunities. Yeah. And, and I remember the minute they started to furlough and, and want to do pay cut. I'm just like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. And so at that point I was looking elsewhere and I remember AP had a reorganization. So they had like some layoff and I reached out to the AP recruiter. I'm just like, hey, you know what? I have a lot of experience with digital transformation and I have a lot of experience dealing with restructuring. Yes, 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 yes. And then they basically got back to me the next day. And matter of fact, we have a job. And the AP interview was grueling. It was like three days. I met with 17 people. Oh my gosh. And what was really surprising is the hiring manager, um, Shazner, who, you know, Shazner yeah, is the totally. hiring manager. Oh my gosh. Vanessa, I love how all these met- characters show up and stay present in the, in the whole thing, you know? And now she's, you know, at the Wall Street Journal. She had me not only meet with different constituency with the newsroom, but she also had me meet with the business side people. Right. She had me meet with the product people. And that's basically sort of like my foray. Just like, wow, I want to work for her because she's not thinking just yeah. like a content producer, right? Because when I was at Miami Herald, toward the end, we were under a lot of financial pressure. I basically was the one who said, let me work with the advertising department. How do I come up with different packages to help them sell to, you know, like local hospital or get sponsorship. And so I had that thinking in my head, but I just didn't know, like, is that something that I could be doing? And so when I was the AP, you know, you know, what Shazen is saying that AP, even though is a not-for-profit, their survival depend on members. And that means they have to be able to, to produce things that membership wants, right? So it's not just about content, but is this also a business? And they try to turn the visual department, interactive and graphic into a business. So like they need to work with the business people hand to hand because a lot of times the business folks are really, I would say for majority in journalism, they have one or two steps behind the journalists who are tech forward, right? Because back then they didn't think about what is an interactive? Because when I was at the AP, I was there during the technology transition from Flash to HTML5, uh-huh. right? So that was sort of like a very fundamental shift in how we think about internet. And at that point, I was sort of managing that sort of transition for the AP. And that sort of opened me up to not only working with a great group of journalists around the world, but I also were able to interact with people from the product side yep. and sales side in terms of like, how do we support you? Yeah. And to how do we support you in a way that will bring incremental revenue, right? Because I'm not a writer, literally, for most of the places, if you're not a writer, you are like the last of anyone's priority. For like Aunt Sally, who doesn't eat, sleep and drink news like you and I do, she doesn't know that like editorial and business are supposed to not talk. The editorial firewall in some way is like, that's privilege. Yeah. That's privilege when you are resource rich. Yeah. And so for me, it's always about like, well, if I don't fight for myself and figure out how to earn a buck, then that means someone will not have a job. Someone in my team could get cut off. We will have less resources to do the work that we need to do. Or I myself would basically be jobless. And, and I'm just like, you know, that's not why my folks came to this country. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience at night, specifically 
vis-a-vis AI and how you manage that portfolio to create the superfood, as you call it, for newsrooms. How is AI superfood for newsroom and how how did that inform your work at night? I mean, when I joined Knight, I was at a point where I've been doing similar jobs for different news organization. And I just know that unless I have more linear route, meaning that I was a traditional editor or TV producer and then run a bureau or become an EP, like there's no way in hell I will be the top person in any newsroom. Right. At best, I would be like a managing editor of innovation or like the ops guy. Right. Because time and time again, people ask like, oh, do you see yourself focused on innovation or operation? And I just don't know, like, why do I have to choose? (laughs) Also a false equivalency, like uh, editorial and business. Right. And so at that point, I sort of realized that I don't know if, you know, my destiny is to be an executive editor. And also, I don't see any place will actually offer me that job, given sort of my background, because so much of what I do, they don't understand it and they don't appreciate it at that point. So when the Knight Foundation job opened, I say, okay, this is sort of my way of learning about a different part of the, the business. And, you know, when I was at the AP, I was interacting with so many different constituents. I was working with the business side. I secured some grants from Knight Foundation. I was, you know, I got some money from, you know, Google and Twitter to do like projects. And I just felt like I got more interested in the strategy, in the sort of like systems of things. So when the night job came, I was at NBC. It was the year where, you know, Megyn Kelly joined NBC and Matt Lauer <laughs> incident. And yeah, not a good and time. I just sort of like, you know, and they had a investigation that's like internal. They didn't hire one. And I'm just like, I don't know if this is the place I want to be right now. And so I would say like, you know, when I was at NBC, what's really illuminating is a couple of things, right? Like how TV think about the internet is so different. Like how broadcast people think about internet and digital is so different than how newspaper people and and word people think about the internet. And so I think understanding that is important and, you know, understanding the TV business model, right? Sort of like how much money the morning show makes and how the local and national affiliate, like all of those knowledge was so key to me because so few people in our industry actually understand how different part of the industry work. Yeah. So I think, you know, in some ways I want to go to NBC because I was just genuinely interested in learning about how does TV handle digital? If everyone say everything's going to be digital, is it really everyone going to think about this the same way? And I could say it's not. The way AP think about digital versus the Miami Herald, right? And versus NBC is completely different. And so when the night opportunity came up, I'm just like, oh, now I actually get to take like different pieces of the things I learned as an editorial person and really stress test and apply it. And, And basically the thing at night is I was a program director, so I gave money away which doesn't sound like a hard job, but it's super hard when it's not your money. So yeah, you, right. and you have to advocate. And, and I think when I came in at night, the thing that I did is night before me had spent a lot of money in terms of investing in new technology. And I think they learned a lot. And I think they came to the conclusion is 
at the end of the day, they don't see journalism as a technology company, mm. right? Mm. Like McClatchy will never invent the next Google. Right. Like New York Times is not going to replace Facebook right. or invent something like. So at that point, it's like, well, what is the relationship between technology and journalism? So at that point, when I came to Knight, I had the opportunity to reshape that strategy and say, okay, how do we ensure that journalism apply to do a smarter application of technology, not just you know, homegrown technology, but how do we actually use technology that everyone else is using, but do it in a way that makes sense for journalism. Right. When I joined Knight, it was sort of like the height of, you know, Netflix was really gaining a lot of dominance, right? Like, and then Amazon yeah. is already big. And you could see where like, you know, the buzzword was like algorithm this, algorithm right. that. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what it is, is there's a recommendation engine, yeah. right? These companies understand how to process user data and then run it through a algorithm or AI to then keep you further engaged. And I'm just thinking like, why are we not doing the same thing in journalism? Because the way we think about sort of recommended content is so yeah. outdated, right? Like I remember like in the back, we just like, if you read one politics story, let's serve another politics yeah. story. Right. So we're not even applying the best of the business intelligence to engage our users. So I think the news industry was very like already bought into automated content. But what I was really interested in is how do we use the applications of AI to assist us to do better journalism, right? Like better investigative journalism, better sort of like BI, right? How do we use that to inform our audience engagement strategy? And so I just see there's all these technology where like Netflix, like Hulu and, and Disney, not necessarily ABC, but like yeah. all these Amazon are using that we are not using. And, and the Still. question is, why the hell not? Why the hell not? At MTV News, there was a, and I experienced this when I talked to colleagues at, at Sillsburger, which is there was this hubris, that editorial hubris of like some old white guy knows what people need to know and want to know. And that it still feels stuck in the system. And I, I feel like that's part of the blocker to say, get out of your own way and let the user's behavior dictate what they get next, not your expertise or some system that just delivers recency or what have you, you know, or most popular. And I'm sure it's moved in the time since I've left pure editorial, but it doesn't feel like it's moved much. Much, right? Yeah, I don't think it has moved much because I think, you know, right now, I don't think we are too late to jump on this AI bandwagon yeah. for journalism. But if we don't do it in the next five years, we will be truly left behind. Yeah. I mean, think about all these other applications, right? Like ChatGBT, right? Technology will always be an extension of our minds and our hands. Mm. And and the thing is, how do we come ahead of it and say, how do we work in partnership with these tools? to actually deliver a better experience for our audience, right? And when you could develop a better experience for your audience and you could think about what is the business of journalism. You know, I wrote like my Neiman prediction and basically my thing was about like, for a place like CPI, we're not in the business of journalism. We're in the business of delivering impact. Our preferred tool is journalism, right? right? Because to me, traditional journalism is really a business of eyeballs advertising, pay, yep. you know, spend money because you either have X amount of reach, this many people look at, read your newspaper, this many people tune into your show, 
right? So it's really an eyeball business, no different than Netflix, no different than any retailer that require foot traffic. So for a place like CPI and for a lot of local news, we could no longer win in that eyeball business, right? right? Advertiser will go to whoever that could deliver the, could deliver the highest amount of eyeballs for them, right? Right now, it just happened to be the tech, you know, like Google and Facebook or maybe Twitter, right? But you could see that like, it's going to be quickly replaced, right? Like advertiser has no loyalty, right? They're going to go to whoever they're going to give them the, the widest reach and the most eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. And so then what is the business of journalism? And if we were to hold people accountable to expose inequality, we have to be able to equip the public to actually drive change. So that means we are in the business of impact, right? And our business in the business of inequality. So if you think of yourself in a different business, then suddenly the way you think about your revenue, the way you think about how you measure your impact is different. No longer do I have to justify to people that, oh, I only have X amount of people. Like the number of people reading our story is no longer the best measurement of our impact. Right. Right. The best measurement of impact is what did people did yep, after action. reading our story? Yeah. Right. So recently we did this whole um, investigation about female truckers where a lot of the female trucker trainees like are victims of sexual assaults. Mm. Are we going to get millions of page view of that story? No. But what that story did is actually reignite lawsuits. And to me, like that's about change. We did something. Our story did something. Yeah. And I think if you sort of think about that, then I'll say, okay, who are the people who care to make these women's lives better? Because if we can make their lives better, then we can make other people's lives better. And who are the people who will be interested in supporting and funding us to make people's lives more equitable? Right. right? That's a very different business than who cares about us reaching a bazillion audience? Like yeah. that's not the business that we need to be in. Who said when they zig, we zag, what does it mean and how does it fit into your worldview? The person who said that was the founder of CPI, Chuck Lewis. And, you know, when I were appointed to CPI, I, you know, I had the opportunity to talk to him and really understand what is CPI's origin story. And he basically saying that, you know, when he left CBS News, you know, because he was a producer for 60 Minutes and stuff. He was basically saying that he want to see a different way of doing investigative journalism that is bespoke, but for a bigger reach, right? So when he founded CPI, what he did is they did the reporting, but they hold press conferences where they gave away their reporting right. as like these like booklet to journalists so that other people could use the reporting that CPI did to do follow up stories to piggyback on it. And so like his whole thing was really about how do we innovate journalism differently? So his mantra is when someone's sick, then we sag. And so I'm just like, this is amazing because I just think and engaging him and having him remind yeah. sort of like our staff is like our origin story is founded on one that's about an innovation. We don't have to do the same status quo, right? We could, we, we could think about things differently. And so we could do things differently. We don't have to copy what everyone else is doing. If we just follow everyone, then you're just going to follow everyone. You're not going to be able to break through. So I think I'm really taking his mantra and say, if I want to do something different, then I just have to be different. Yeah. I cannot be concerned about what 
Other people say, well, this is what everyone else is doing. Why are you doing something different? You know, if anyone just follow the same path, then we will not have a thing like Facebook or, yeah. or Google or TikTok or yeah, yeah, Netflix, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so I think journalism need more, I hate the word disruptor, but yeah. we, we need more people who don't follow the linear yeah. path. Who right? zag, like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, and I don't I don't think of myself as a, as a disruptor because I don't think I'm here to disrupt anything. But what I do think of myself is I'm fundamentally different. My origin story is different, and I want to forge a different path for journalism. I was going to ask about the Neiman article, so I'm glad you raised it. In that article, you advocate for vulnerability, self care, and self advocacy. How do you make that manifest in your own life and with your team? It's funny because I think journalism in some way is so hierarchical, right? Like yeah. we've all been in places where it's just like the editor want this. I'm like, well, <laughs> do you heard it from the editor's mouth or we sort of interpret it again yeah. and again? I, I think that's really pervasive and that's really damaging to sort of like journalism culture as a whole. And so one thing that I sort of been advocating, you know, and I have to remind my team and my staff is just like, I might be the CEO for public integrity, but I'm your colleague. Mm-hmm. I just occupy a different position. Like I don't own public integrity. If we actually like, like get a lot of grants, I don't get to take home more money. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like we are all doing the same thing. We're here to advance our mission, except that I occupy a different position than you do. We're like, constantly reminding people that's like, I'm your colleague and I have ups and downs just like, you have ups and downs. So don't make the assumption. I, I remember one meeting, I basically told them, just like, hey, folks, I just want to let you know, um, the past couple of weeks have been really hard for me because with everything that's going on with API hate and the Ukraine situation, it really affects me personally because A, um, you know, when I moved to DC, I was like assaulted, right? I don't know if it was a hate crime or not, but, you know, I, I try not to think too much about it. But at the same time, like with the Ukraine war, like my partner is have Ukrainian and I'm sort of thinking about like there are things that they are thinking about, you know, that impacts me. And just because I'm not showing it, it doesn't mean it's not in my head. Yeah. And, you know, for me to talk about it is really basically saying that I know all of you have different shit that's going on in your life because that's what life is. Yeah. Don't feel like you have to put up the best face forward. Sometimes it's okay to say, you know what, I'm exhausted and I need to take a nap. Sometimes it's okay to say, you know what, I'm not okay right now. So I'm just going to hang back. So it's be able to create a space for people to say like, I don't know if I'm capable of doing this at this moment. And I think being vulnerable also creates space for someone else to step up, right? That's really where leadership could come in, right? And and if you sort of want to do everything and lead everything, it leaves no room for other people to grow. Based on the intervening years, what would be your message or guidance to that nine-year-old on the airplane? What would you tell him now? Life is life. Um, you just can't rush it. There's things that you don't understand, but you just need to take the time to understand it, right? So I think part of this is like not rushing... One of the big advice is like, A, don't rush to a conclusion, right? Because I think a lot of times, you know, whether we're younger, even now, we take things so personally, right? We just think like, this person is doing this to me. 
right? Like, you don't know. It probably had very little to do with you at all. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And sort of like take the time to really understand and develop that empathy. Right. My best advice is like, don't jump to the conclusion unless you know where the story is ending, because if you close that door, you close that door. Yeah. Right. You will never find out. So I think my advice to my nine year old selves is like, be even more patient. Mm. And that's really hard. I think patience is one of the hardest things for journalists too, right? Because like the way we think about deadline, the way that we think about production is like, we're just very impatient people. But I would say right now we need patience. We need patience to understand the context. We need patience to understand where the business is going. We need patience for things to work itself out, right? Because like journalism right now is messy. We are working in a contracting industry across five generations, right? You have people from the silent generation to wow, yeah. Gen Z, right? And there's no dominant sort of philosophy of what journalism is, right? So all these tension points that we're experiencing in terms of like, you know, what journalism is, is it advocacy? Is it not advocacy? Like two sideism social media policy, right? The firewall of like editorial and business, all of that stemmed from because there is no dominant philosophy because there's no one group of people really controlling what journalism is like before, right? You know, prior to, to now, like you have clearly the, you know, the boomers are in control. Right now, like as the boomers sort of retiring, you have Gen Xer and then you have like the older millennials, younger millennials and Gen Z, all of them all of us have a different version of journalism. Mm -hmm. All of us have a different version of what is right and wrong and where the business is going. And because there's no dominant force in the contracting industry, like all these tension points are quickly arising. And so part of this is like, you have to be really patient. No one is completely right and no one is completely wrong. It's just really a matter of where you sit. And what's right for one group could be completely wrong for another Right. And that also extends to our audience. Right. And so I think that's the part where it's super tricky. Right. Because the way we think about journalism back then is because majority of the audience like is one demographic. Right. We know who they are. We really don't know. Right. Because what works for Gen Xer does not necessarily work for like Gen Z. Right. Like you could use the same word and literally mean two different things yeah, yeah, to yeah. people. And so, so the advice is just how do we, learn how to be patient and how do we actually not jump to conclusions? How do you practice that? How do you manage that in the moment? I think it's really surround yourself with people who are not yes people. Mm. When I hire folks, I think of them as my peers. Recently I hired two people like a CPI and we work really well because they challenge my assumption right? They seek clarity, you know, because power dynamic is always going to be there. So how do we create a culture where we invite clarity and learning rather than punitive, right? Because I think often at workplace, we think about accountability as punitive. And so in my Kobayashi article, I basically saying that how do we prioritize learning, right? Part of accountability is really about culture of learning, right? If we don't hold people accountable, if they don't explain why things doesn't work out or work out the way, how else are we going to be able to identify the knowledge gap? How else are we going to be able to, to grow from that experience, to make yeah. changes? But I think what 
we need to be intentional is to be explicit, saying that look, we're holding people accountable not for punitive reason, but it's really about developing a better culture of learning. Because if we don't learn, we're just not going to survive. You just have to repeat that again and again and again. And how do you surround yourself with people whose interest is to learn and grow, and not to uphold? Right. I think that's like a, a nuance because I feel like there's so many people in our industry just want to uphold mm-hmm. rather than how do we have a group of people who are, is able to adapt and evolve and learn? I don't know if it's a, a nervous system thing, if I had to be that way, do you know, because of how I was raised and how you were raised, because it's not everybody. And I don't know if it's a fear, courage, confidence thing, but it feels to me like there's almost, it's almost like a fundamental attribute. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a privilege thing. Maybe it's all those things. It's probably all those things, right? Probably a combination yeah, of yeah, all of that, yeah, right? Yeah. Because I just feel like uncertainty is sort of like, that's the only thing that's certain for me. Yeah, that's right. right. Like, yeah. I mean, literally, I remember going back to my origin story. I didn't know when I was moving to the States. Like, literally, I was like going to class in Hong Kong. And then, like, I don't even know what's going on. But one day, my grandmother was just like, okay, we're ready for you to move to the United States. And wow. you're going to leave, like, in two weeks. I'm like, wow. what? Yeah. Like, do I say goodbye to my friends? Right? Like, you know, like, things going to change yeah. at a whim. Right? If anything the pandemic had taught us is things going to change. And there's things that we should take with us and build on and learn. And I just think, like, this is the time for us to do it. Because if not, like, I really don't know how journalism is going to survive in the next decade. Yeah. Like all those people who sort of like spewing what journalism is and it isn't, I don't know if they have a place because journalism is evolving. There is no is and there is no isn't. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please help us bring Friends and Neighbors, the documentary, to the big screen by visiting fnndoc.com. Without your support, we simply can't finish the film or carry on this deep and simple podcast. So thank you. And for more on the Media Transformation Challenge at the Pointer Institute, please visit pointer.org. It's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. <laughs>